Bookstack, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose. I'm Richard Aldous, a historian and professor at Bard College, New York. Each week, I'll be talking to authors of new books and with my colleagues at American Purpose and outside contributors, we'll produce regular mini-episodes about both new books and older books of enduring interest. On the show today, our first episode, Georgetown Professor Charles A. Cutchin. He served on the National Security Council staff in the Obama and Clinton administrations. He's the author of the new book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Charles, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you, Richard. So congratulations on the new book. That term, isolationism, so often used as an insult. What does it actually mean? Isolationism carries a lot of baggage, uh, and perhaps with good reason, uh, in part because the United States during the 1930s was missing in action when fascism and militarism were sweeping Europe and, and Asia. And, and to be called an isolationist became a dirty word over the course uh, of that era. Uh, but I, I think that it's, it's best to try to see it as a strategic doctrine more than an insult. And as a strategic doctrine, uh, I think one can sum it up by the phrase, uh, stay out of other people's troubles and they'll stay out of yours. And in the book, I define isolationism as an American strategy that essentially focused on the expansion of the union across North America, but not beyond. So the United States from the get-go was a very ambitious, expansive country if measured by its readiness to move from the 13 colonies westward to the Pacific coast, grabbing uh, territory from Mexico along the way, trying several times unsuccessfully to grab territory from Canada, but was determined not to go further. Uh, And really starting with President George Washington in his farewell address and continuing right through the 19th century until the Spanish-American War, one proposal after another to go further to Cuba, to Haiti, the Virgin Islands, Santo Domingo, Hawaii, you name it. Every such proposal was swatted away either by Congress or the executive branch. Yeah, I suppose that, I mean, we're used to so many of these famous phrases, aren't we, from Washington's farewell address, Jefferson and his uh, warning about entangling alliances, John Quincy Adams warning about not going abroad, searching for monsters to destroy, uh, that there really is a sense that this is rooted right in the foundations of the republic itself. Not just in the foundations of the republic, I would say it's, it's in the country's DNA. Uh, in the sense that today, internationalism, Pax Americana, rolls off the tongue. Anyone who questions it is is out of bounds or certainly at the political margins. For much of American history until Pearl Harbor, it was exactly the opposite. Those who talked about going abroad, those who talked about taking territories beyond North America, they were the ones who were out of bounds. They were the ones who were seen as at the political margins. And it's hard to overstate the degree to which isolationism had a real lock on American politics and American ideology, and importantly, American identity. 
because I argue in the book that one of the reasons isolationism lasted so long is that it was not just a question of policy, it was a question of identity, of narrative, of who Americans were and who they, they wanted to be, deeply infused by the, by the conception of American exceptionalism. Uh, and and that, that is uh, quite startling for someone like myself, who came of age during the Cold War, who started writing and teaching as the Cold War was was ending, because we've been spoon-fed on the on the notion that American exceptionalism essentially means America running the world. Before 1941, American exceptionalism meant protecting the American experiment by standing aloof from a corrupt and dangerous world. And was was some of that connected to national status as well as national identity? After all, for the first hundred years, the United States just doesn't really matter geopolitically. But once it becomes a, a global or increasingly global economic power, it's inevitable that it would have to play a similar role politically too. I suppose we've seen that more recently with China, for example. Well, there's, there's no question that isolationism was to some extent related to the country's youth and weakness. Uh, during its early years and decades, the United States did not have the wherewithal to engage in great power politics. It was hard pressed just to push the British, the French, and the Spanish out of their immediate neighborhood. But for two different reasons, I think isolationism was not just about the nation's youthfulness and early weakness. One is that this issue was actually debated by George Washington and Madison and Hamilton Uh, Should isolation, should the injunction against entangling alliances be temporary or should it be doctrine? Uh, And and George Washington decided it as doctrine. And he said in his farewell address, this is the great rule, quote unquote. This is not what we're doing today and tomorrow. This is the great rule for American statecraft. The other point I would make is that the United States took off as a serious economic heavyweight after the Civil War. It nonetheless continued its isolationist career right up until the end of the 19th century. So even when the U.S. had the wherewithal to throw its weight around strategically, geopolitically, it chose not to do so. And actually, in the in the book, you suggest that that's actually one of the things that allows the United States uh, economy to take off. Uh, yes, because the U.S. was investing everything at home. It was building canals and railroads and ports and other kinds of economic and commercial infrastructure rather than battleships and colonies. Uh, and that focus on domestic development played played a very important role in the in the rise of the United States and it also meant that the United States largely rose in an unmolested fashion people left it alone uh, the only major conflict that the United States had to deal with after the war of 1812 was the civil war uh, and so the strategy of being left alone to enjoy the natural security of flanking oceans That worked. Uh, The United States was seen as threatening by European powers, so threatening, in fact, 
that the British and the French actually sided with the South during the Civil War because they preferred that there be two Americas rather than one, because then the strength of the country would be divided between two antagonistic entities. Uh, but the, 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 you know, the, the, the story of the 19th century is one is with, in which isolationism cleared the way for America's ascent as a great power. I was also very struck in the book about how there's a war of ideas going on here. This is not just about practical politics, that on the one hand, you have this idea that you mentioned earlier, the idea that entangling alliances, getting involved overseas is corrupting of democracy itself, of the idea of democracy. On the other hand, as you point out, you've got the likes of Frederick Jackson Turner, um, Hahn to some degree, um, who are arguing that actually manifest destiny has to be spread abroad if American democracy is going to retain its vibrancy. So this is, as I say, an intellectual battle, isn't it? I think that that ideology and ideas are very difficult to disentangle from, from geopolitics. And the story that I tell in the book is one in which isolationism lasted as long as it did in partly because it had multiple ideological variants and therefore had something for everybody to like. There was the natural security version. Then there was the version of liberty at home and abroad, that the United States didn't want to be a great power with a big federal government and an expensive army and navy because that would come to threaten domestic liberty. Another version of it had to do with America serving as a beacon to the world, only if it protected and preserved its domestic freedom could it be a light unto the world and an example for others. And there was also a darker element, and that was racism. One of the reasons that the United States did not expand into the Caribbean, into Latin America, into the Pacific, is because there was a consensus that they didn't want to bring more non-whites into the body politic. And that, that, by the way, is also the case after the Civil War, not just before the Civil War. Uh, and so there is a certain xenophobia and anti-immigrate sentiment that intermixes with isolationism across American history. Yeah, it is one of the things, one of the complications that's always seemed to me about isolationism is this kind of co connection with what we sometimes call nativism. Um, is it possible to disentangle those two, do you think? I think that it is possible to disentangle the two. Uh, and that if you see isolationism simply as a, a doctrine that says we don't want to go out and get entangled in the affairs of areas far away from us, that does not immediately have any intersection with issues of race. Empirically speaking, the two have often run together. And so, you know, the heyday of isolationism and its darkest era was the 1920s and the 1930s. And their nativism and isolationism did intermingle. The 1924 anti-immigration legislation was draconian. Almost a million Americans of Mexican heritage were expelled in the 1930s, deported, including many American 
citizens. And then if you look at the America First Committee, uh, which is, I think, what Donald Trump was looking to when he came up with his America First terminology, uh, many anti-Semites, prominent anti-Semites participated in, in the America First movement. And now, as we see uh, a kind of comeback of isolationist sentiment on, during the Trump era, no question that it is intermingled with a certain nativism and white nationalism in the United States. Although it's interesting, as you were talking about the 20s and 30s there, as you point out, even somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, who we think of as uh, somebody who will institute that kind of the beginning of that liberal international order and obviously will fight the Second World War as part of that alliance. Uh, nevertheless, in, in the 30s, he's absolutely in the isolationism mainstream. Uh, you're right to point that out, Richard. And I have to say, <clears throat> I was quite surprised as I began to delve into the history of the 30s and the Roosevelt presidency because he's idolized today as the father of internationalism, the great wartime leader, uh, and and not just the, the New Deal architect. But if you go back and you look at where Roosevelt was from the time he took office until the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he really wanted to keep the United States out of the war. In fact, he uh, not just went along with, but also helped design a succession of tightening neutrality acts that essentially cordoned the United States off from commercial contact with belligerents. It is uh, the case that starting in 1939, Roosevelt began to push back against the hardcore isolationists by creating mechanisms for the victims of Nazi aggression to purchase arms and other goods from the U.S. And then you start seeing Lend-Lease, the program to send arms and, and uh, various kinds of vessels to uh, countries fighting the Germans and the Japanese. But he said quite explicitly, the reason I am doing this is to keep the United States out of the war. I am helping others defend themselves so that we do not get ensnared. And he kept his word because the United States didn't enter the war until the Japanese left America no choice. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? After the First World War, Woodrow Wilson tries to put in place a, a system of some kind of world governance, I suppose, maybe you might, certainly a world order. Um, the Americans much more successfully do the same thing after the, the Second World War. And in doing so, they completely change this mindset that you've been talking about uh, to us today. Um, why do you think that is? Is it is it just simply to do with Pearl Harbor, or is there something that was already developing that there was a kind of I know that as historians we don't like to talk about inevitability, but was there a kind of inevitability to what happened after 1945? I think there was an inevitability to the United States taking its mission, taking manifest destiny abroad. Uh, you know, as an international relations scholar, I tend to affiliate myself with the realist tradition. Uh, and the realist tradition holds that a country that becomes economically powerful will eventually translate 
its economic power into military power. And so what happened beginning during the McKinley presidency was not in my mind unusual, surprising. Uh, What is surprising to me is how hard it was for the United States to turn the corner. It really took from 1898 to 1941 for Americans to become comfortable with entanglement in global politics. McKinley tries, but it doesn't really work because he turns the United States into an empire and the occupation of the Philippines that started uh, with the Spanish-American War did not go well. Uh, And then you see dollar diplomacy, a return to American foreign policy focused largely on commercial engagement. Then Wilson comes along and he swings to the opposite end of the spectrum. He's an idealist. He wants to enter World War I to save the world for democracy, uh, but he went too far. And Americans said, wait a minute, fighting in the trenches of Europe doesn't sound like a, an idealist project to us. And then he failed in his effort to guide the country into the, the League of Nations. And then finally, I think Roosevelt's magic is he marries the realism of McKinley with the idealism of Wilson, and he creates liberal internationalism. Power and partnership together as a formula that convinces Americans to take their mission abroad. And one other thing that I think is important here is that the domestic politics came together. Because starting in 1898, the Republicans really became the party of unilateralism and the assertive use of American power. The Democrats under Bryan were anti-imperialists and multilateralists. There was very little bipartisanship. Roosevelt found a way to bring the parties together. He gave the Democrats multilateralism. He gave the Republicans the assertive use of power. And suddenly we see a bipartisan center in American politics behind America taking manifest destiny abroad. I mean, it's interesting that after the Cold War is over, that uh, America really returns, particularly after 9-11, to that more Wilsonian tradition. Um, In a way, they kind of actively go looking for John Quincy Adams's monsters to destroy. Why, Why do you think that was? I think that in some ways, 1941 was a turning point that altered how Americans understood exceptionalism. As I said earlier, for much of American history, American exceptionalism meant standing aloof to preserve the American experiment. Then we get attacked on Pearl Harbor, and the idea that we can stand aloof from the world goes out the window, but we swing to the opposite extreme, which is we need to make the world safe for American engagement. We need to take our domestic experiment and bring it to others. During the Cold War, I think that expansive ambition was kept in check by the presence of a peer competitor. Once the Cold War is over, that expansive ambition, the exceptionalist narrative, in my mind, pushes us to go too far. It pushes us to engage in ventures abroad, which have not gone well. The forever wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, going into Syria, 
going into Libya. It's, in my mind, these over episodes of overreach that have brought Americans to rediscover the allure of non-entanglement, coupled with domestic discontent over globalization and the wage stagnation of America's middle and working class as a consequence of deep engagement in the global economy. Yeah, it's one of the things that's really interesting and intriguing about this book is that you make it clear, it's in, and in many ways it's a, it's a brave claim to be staking out for somebody who served in the Obama administration uh, and the Clinton administration, that you think that kind of there, there is a need for this kind of uh, correction, for an isolationist correction. Uh, you might not uh, stand side by side with President Trump, but you can see where this is coming from. Um, and I suppose his supporters have argued that, well, it's on one level it's worked. He's the first president in at least 40 years not to have started a new war on his watch. Let me, uh, for the record, state that I am not a big fan of, of President Trump. Uh, I don't think he's taken the country in the right direction. In fact, I'd say he's done a lot of, a lot of damage. But I do think it's important to harvest some lessons from his presidency including the degree to which he is tapping into weariness among the American electorate, to the degree that he senses it is time to lighten America's load abroad. Um, I am, I'm not an isolationist. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to try to inoculate the country against isolationism by recognizing that we are in a state of what I would call strategic overreach and that we need to strike a new balance between our commitments abroad and our means and purposes. We need to, to make sure that there is an equilibrium on that front because otherwise I do fear that we could head back to a world in which the United States irresponsibly sheds foreign commitments rather than undertakes what I would call a judicious retrenchment. And it, it's, it's quite striking to me that you now have not just the Republicans that support Donald Trump, but Democrats calling for a pullback, particularly among the progressive wing of the party. You have foreign affairs, the mouthpiece of the foreign policy establishment recently putting out an issue with the cover emblazoned with come home America, question mark. You now have uh, something called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, funded by George Soros on the left and Charles Koch on the right to argue for an American retreat from the global stage. So it's clear to me that there is a head of steam building for the United States to, to pursue a more modest brand of statecraft. One of my goals here is to help find that more modest brand in a responsible and a paced in a measured way. Because I think if we went back to the kind of dangerous retreat that we saw in the 1930s, it would be terrible for the world and terrible for the United States. Yeah, it's one of the other fascinating aspects of this book that you bring all of your scholarship as a historian and um, international relations uh, specialist to the book. But you do also bring very much your experience of being in the room 
to the book. I mean, right at the very beginning, you talk about uh, the way that President Obama is kind of wrestling with the, those isolationist uh, impulses himself, the infamous red line over Syria, which you call a historic turning point and, and so on. Um, you know, these are complicated issues. How is policy moved forward uh, when you're actually there in the Security Council wrestling with these with these kinds of ideas? What are the what's the practical advice uh, that you would give to whoever is in that room in the next administration? Uh, you know, Richard, I started the book, I think, 2011, 2012, in part because I sensed that the U.S. was heading towards a tipping point in that uh, the forever wars had created a sense of weariness. Going back to the 1990s, one began to see a a rapid fall off in the public's interest in international affairs, which was temporarily suspended by 9-11, but not completely. And so I felt that that the, the country was headed toward an inward turn and then when I was there in the situation room involved in, in the making of, of policy, I could really feel that these big issues were on the table, not in, a, in an explicit way, in the sense that we don't sit around and have big macro discussions about isolationism and internationalism and Roosevelt and Wilson and McKinley, but you could see that President Obama himself was, at least by my measure, a retrenchment president. He ran for re-election in 2012, calling for nation building here at home. And he struggled mightily to get out of Afghanistan, to get out of Iraq. And he was dragged back into Iraq and ultimately to Syria only because the Islamic State came along. And so here was a president who was bucking to offload uh, Middle East uh, commitments that he felt were excessive, having a devilish time doing so, I think being frustrated by it. And that really set the stage for President Trump to run on uh, a platform that was very much a kind of return to a, I wouldn't say a return to isolationism, but it had clear isolationist overtones. Uh, and as President Trump prepared for the 2020 election, he was determined to deliver on his pledges. He drew down in Syria, he drew down in Afghanistan, drew down in Iraq, drew down in Germany. And when he did so, he said, I'm doing this because I told you I was going to bring the troops home and that's exactly what I'm doing. So uh, Trump, uh, Trump, un- uh, I think, has been tapping into this, this um, inward turn in the American electorate. And I do think that whoever wins the next election will have to continue to deal with this pressure to husband American resources, to pursue a more modest foreign policy, because that seems to me to be what the American electorate wants. I mean, you mentioned the situation room there. You would have been in that room with Joe Biden when he was vice president. Uh, can you give us any kind of clues from those meetings about what kind of president he might be, what kind of commander in chief he would be, should he win the election? Biden uh, is a 
an Atlanticist. He is an internationalist. He is a multilateralist. Were he to win the election, I think American foreign policy would return to a form that is much closer to what came before Trump than to Trump. Uh, That having been said, I think Joe Biden is also a pragmatist. Uh, He is someone who historically has been more cautious about intervention. Uh, And in that respect, I think he would be trying to thread the needle between an America that still has extremely important role to play in Europe and in Asia, dealing with the rise of China, dealing with a pugnacious Russia. But I expect that he would continue to uh, try to downsize the American commitment in the Middle East. The areas where I think the change would be most pronounced would be uh, going back to being a team player, going back to working with other nations. I would expect an early return to the Paris Climate Agreement, an early effort to try to get a deal, a new deal of a sort to contain Iran's nuclear program, a reaffirmation of the American commitment to its core allies, including NATO allies. And in some ways, most importantly, the return of a serious policy process. We do not now have in the United States a serious policy process. We have a president who makes policy by tweet. And then the rest of the Washington foreign policy establishment goes running around trying to figure out what they should do. The way it is supposed to work, the way I saw it work when I worked in the White House, is ideas, strategy, comes up from below. It it works up its, its way from the State Department, the Pentagon, the Commerce Department, up to the National Security Council. You debate the options, you put it before the president. I think Biden knows how to run things. He knows how to manage things. We'd be back with an American brand of statecraft in which the policy process itself becomes much more rational and much more effective. Although you're not that complimentary about the foreign policy establishment, uh, the kind of foreign affairs crowd, if you like, um, do do you worry that there would be an attempt to go back to an older model that wouldn't confront some of the the really important issues that the United States has in front of it in the world today? I do. I do worry about that, in part because I witnessed uh, President Obama kind of push up against what some people call the blob. Uh, I think there is still a mindset in which if the United States sees a problem in the world, it needs to send out the fire trucks. If uh, there is a, a, a financial crisis, the United States opens its checkbook. Well, you know, I think we're headed into a world in which there may not be in America that's always ready to send out the fire trucks or to write the checks. And in that sense, we need to get ready for a world in which power is more widely distributed, in which because of the pandemic and the need for domestic investment, foreign policy may not get the attention and the resources that it used to. 
I mean, I, I do think that the country is going through a period somewhat reminiscent of the 1930s, when there was strategic overreach, when there was enormous economic dislocation, when Americans felt that engagement abroad was coming at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home, when a certain nativism was on the rise. So I think we need to take a page from history to say we, we need to address these, these domestic issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's safe to say this is in some ways the most troubling, worrying political moment of my lifetime. Never did I imagine that the United States would be stumbling in the way that it is today and that the major Atlantic democracies would be facing the threats from illiberal forces uh, that we see today. And so I think the first, second, and third, fourth priorities for the next president, they have to be to get our democratic institutions functioning again, to get the economy back up on its feet, to rebuild solidarity among the core democracies of the world. Because if that doesn't happen, I fear we're going to be heading into a 21st century, which is a a challenging century, without the liberal anchor that has been guiding global politics since 1941. So the book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. It's written by my guest, Charles A. Cupchin, and published by Oxford University Press. But for now, Charles, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. It's been my pleasure speaking with you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. Do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying have a great week.